And turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 20. Today we are in our penultimate message in our series on Acts. Um, and I trust that you've enjoyed the last 14 parts of this series as much as we have. As Dr. Luke is talking about this letter and pens this letter, he has one hope above all things. He wants to help Theophilus and indeed all those then that are going to read this letter, including us, see and understand that the gospel really is unstoppable. That nothing can stand in the way of the gospel, that God's saving plan is truly unstoppable. And that's why the book of Acts is very fast-paced. I mean, right from the start, you get this whole idea that Jesus says to the disciples very clearly that they need to wait. They're going to receive power from on high. And having received the Holy Spirit, they're going to take the gospel as a group. And they're going to take it to Jerusalem, to Samaria, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happens at quite a pace. And so as Dr. Luke pens this letter, I can assure you he wouldn't mind us taking big chunks of the letter. Because it's not a letter. It's not designed to be very detailed. It's not designed in such a way that every line has a piece of theology or application that we're meant to take on board. You have to slow down when you're doing that. This is more like, in some ways, reading a divinely inspired newspaper. He's letting us know, this is how it happened. This is how the gospel moved forward. And I want you to see the gospel is unstoppable. And I trust you've enjoyed seeing that that is the case as much as we have been delivering it. And yet in Acts chapter 20, the pace does indeed slow for a chapter. See, this is the only time in the book of Acts, this is the only speech in this book that is given to a Christian audience. Every other speech in the book of Acts is given to either the Jews or the Gentiles, people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And yet right here in Acts chapter 20, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders. Paul is about to leave on a boat to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome, ultimately to his death. And so he gathers the Ephesian elders together, really as representative of the Ephesian church, really as representative of all of us that would be a part of the universal church to come. And he has some things that he wants to share with them. And so I've called this message a painful goodbye. And my friends, as we read it from verse 17 through to the end of verse 38, I want you to imagine that you are an Ephesian elder. I want you to imagine that you are there and that you are in the crowd listening on to Paul because he's, he's got something to say. And he is instructing you. God is communicating to sovereign grace 2,000 years on. And this is what Paul says, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, Ye yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city 
that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among you whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am an innocent of the blood of all of you. For I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of them all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Lord, your word is incredible. Lord, I thank you for this chapter. I thank you that you inspired Dr. Luke to scribe this so that it would both be his words and your words. Lord, would we be sobered by these words today? Would we be motivated by these words today? Would we have an accurate assessment on our own lives as we see ourselves in the mirror of your word today? Lord, would we be addressed by you today? Behold our God talking to us through his word. Lord, have your way amongst us. Amen. Some goodbyes in our lives are very, very painful, aren't they? I remember at 18 years old, I grew up in a small country town in Spalding. There's not a lot of stuff goes on there. And I remember when at 18 years old, my mum my and dad put me in my dad's van and they took me all the way to Cardiff, four hours away. There were no universities in the villages, so I had to go four hours away, and I moved away from home at 18 years old. And I was dead excited leading up to the moment. And I'll never forget, as I got out of the van, and we put everything in my small room, and they waved me off and drove away. And you just think, oh my gosh, that's it. They're gone, and... It was one of the most difficult goodbyes I've ever done because I love my parents and I love being with my parents. But now they're gone. They're not available to me in the same way. I remember when our Josh was sick 
and the very first operation he had on his cleft palate. And then they made me go into the room with him and help put him to sleep. And just, it's just what they do in the UK. And so I had to hold him down as they were doing that. And then when he was eventually asleep in this huge operating theater, the surgeon looks at me and says, well, you can kiss him goodbye now if you'd like to. And you just think, oh, my word. So I kissed my boy, who at that time was three, and left the room. And I didn't really want to leave the room. I just thought, you know, shall I just oversee what's going on here? Because, I, I, you know, I've read a book about it and stuff and might be able to help. But walking out of that room and then down the corridor was possibly one of the most emotional walks of my entire life. I remember leaving Christchurch our home church in the UK, a church that we had been a part of for 17 years. I got to serve um, in pastoral ministry with full-time men who were not just fellow dudes. They were my best friends. And our families were in that church. And people we had baptized were in that church and married and dedicated their kids for years. And i never forget the last morning and they prayed for us and they sent us out. And we were excited to go. And we are stoked about what the Lord is, is doing here amongst us. And we feel the great affection for you all now in the same way we did then for those guys. But I'll never forget that morning when we left. And there were literally hundreds of people. I thought we were going to be there for the rest of our lives. One by one, thanking us and, and committing us to God in prayer and encouraging us. And, and the next person would come along. It would, I had no tears left to cry by the end of the day. There are some goodbyes in our lives that are so difficult, aren't they? But imagine saying goodbye to someone when you know that you're never going to see them again. You're not going to get to Skype them. It's going to be no FaceTime. You can't call them up. You can't email them. You would be completely unaware how they're doing and how it's going. That would be so painful, wouldn't it? It would be so difficult to wave them off knowing that that's it. This side of eternity, I'm not going to see them again. And I think one thing as I've pondered that this week is you would want to ensure in that moment, if you knew this was the final goodbye, that the words you speak are meaningful. You'd be choosing them really carefully, wouldn't you? Because you're aware this is it. I'm not going to see them again. And so I want them to know how I feel about them. I want to give them some final instructions. I want to make my words to them count. Well, as we look at this text today, I think what we have here, verses 17 through 38, are the carefully chosen words of a painful goodbye. These are men that Paul dearly loves. He planted this local church in Ephesus. He loves these men. He had seen people come to know the Lord. He had taught the gospel there. He had seen to gather them together as a church, build structures in the church, and indeed set in elders. He had been there for three years of his ministry, giving blood, sweat, and tears for the sake of the gospel in the premises of Ephesus. And yet he now believes accurately that this is the last time that he's going to see them. Look at verse 25. He says, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 
He's awaiting a boat that's going to take him to Jerusalem, that's ultimately then going to send him all the way to Rome, ultimately to his death, and he knows that. He's becoming growingly aware what is going to take place for the rest of his days, and he knows his days are coming to a close. And what we have here then are the carefully chosen words of a painful goodbye. And my friends, I want to encourage you, they are carefully chosen words that still speak to us today. See, these Ephesian elders are gathered together by Paul because he wants them to represent the church. He's aware he can't just call the whole church to Miletus. So he calls the elders because he has some specific things to communicate to them in their capacity. But on the whole, they're just there representing the church there. And in some ways, that's why we're in the crowd as well. Paul is not just talking to that Ephesian church. He's talking to all those who love Jesus Christ, all those who have been called by God to go make disciples of all nations, namely every one of us in this room. There is a call of God on our lives to take the gospel out, isn't there? To brandish the gospel. Paul hasn't said at any point, and Jesus hasn't said at any point, well, that's the role of a pastor. A pastor's role is to equip the saints for works of ministry. One of the works of ministry that we all go on mission together and proclaim the gospel. Pastors equip, people go. And Paul is aware of that. And so he gathers the Ephesian elders together, representing the Ephesian church, representing us, to communicate to us before he goes on his way to Jerusalem three important things about our mission. He's talking to us as fellow soldiers. He's talking to us as one who's aware. You've been sent. So I want to give you some final instructions about what it is to be sent. I want to give you some final instructions that are going to help you as you seek to brandish the gospel and go make disciples of all nations. I want to communicate some things to you before I say goodbye to you. Three things then. Here's the first. Number one, our mission costs. Our mission, Paul's mission, and your mission, it costs. Look with me at verse 33. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul was without doubt totally sold out for the gospel, wasn't he? This was his whole life. He was aware that I don't, I'm not requiring anything off you. I just want to serve you. I just want to bless you. I want to seek to proclaim the gospel with you. I want to give my whole life to serving Jesus. I want to give my whole life to seek to help people. I want to give my whole life understanding that it's more blessed to give than receive. So you can have, you can have my life. Paul gave his whole life for the advancement of the gospel. And when you hear that, when you hear that story from verse 33 to 35, I think so often our westernized mindset begins to have a preconceived idea that surely if this man is giving himself to gospel work, surely if this man is giving himself wholeheartedly to the spread of the gospel, that God would be blessing him. And what we hear in that is that God will be blessing him with health and wealth. We are very unlikely in this local church to be imbibing the health and wealth gospel. That's not your background. I, I doubt there's any one of us in this room that believes in the health and wealth gospel. However, I submit to you that nonetheless, we can be seduced to it. 
Not in the sense that we believe it's the gospel. But in a sense that we believe, surely if I'm serving Jesus, surely if I'm given to Jesus, surely if I'm seeking to do all I can to forward the gospel and bless Jesus, surely then health and wealth will follow me for the rest of the days of my life. Surely I won't get sick. And surely I'll have a nice home. And surely I'll be comfortable and at ease. Because that's what I would do if I was a good God. That's what I would do if I was a lovely father. And yet we read on about Paul's example, Paul's experience, and we realize our westernized cultural view on health and wealth is completely bogus and unbiblical. Because that's not what we read in the Bible. That's not what it means to be pursued by the Lord in goodness and mercy, that we're just healthy and wealthy. No, being pursued by the Lord in in goodness and mercy is pursuing us to care for us and make us more like Jesus Christ. Not just give us houses and cars. And healthy existences. Look then at what it's cost Paul to really live for Jesus. Verse 18 says, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, listen, and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Serving Jesus for Paul cost a lot. He was a man that was well acquainted with trials, a man that was well acquainted with tears. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he writes to the church in Corinth, he, he describes this a bit more. He's a humble man, so you don't pick it up in lots of places. But this is what he says he went through. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold, and in exposure. But Lord, I thought that if I really served you and went on mission with you, that life would be great. Not so, according to Paul. According to Paul, mission, mission costs. Also has a future cost, doesn't it? Look at what he says in, in verse 22. He says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul is going forward knowing and not knowing. He's going forward not knowing what is actually going to happen to him in Jerusalem. But he does know something. He knows that it's not going to be jacuzzis and nice hotels as he seeks to spread the gospel there. It's going to be afflictions. And it's going to be imprisonment. It's going to be hard. As he seeks to take the gospel. But he is bound by the Lord. Bound by the Holy Spirit to do this. And he wants to do it. But he's aware this is going to be painfully difficult. And then there's a present cost. Look with me. Verse 37. It says, And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken. 
that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. My friends, do you see the emotion in this text? Imagine that. This man has planted this church. He's brought many people to faith in Jesus Christ. He's given his life to this church. And now as they stand there with him, he's saying to them very clearly, I've got to go. And I don't know what awaits me there, but I know it's going to be afflictions. And I know it's going to be imprisonment. In fact, to be honest, I'm confident I'm going to die there. And you won't see my face again. And they then accompany him to the ship, praying with him, kissing him, because they love him. And then he leaves. My friends, mission costs. We can have such a westernized health and wealth outlook on mission, can't we? We can just have this idea that surely if I serve Jesus Christ, surely if I brandish the gospel, surely if I'm a Christian, then I'll be healthy. And surely if I'm a Christian and Jesus really loves me and blesses me according to scripture, that I'll have it all. That I'll have what the world has and extra. Because surely that's what it would mean as biblically defined. Surely that's the way it works, right? We have this westernized easy concept of Christianity. As if I want to do a mission, but I want it to be easy. Surely if God really loves me, it will be easy. And Paul then comes along and says, you know what, Sovereign Grace? Mission will cost you. It won't be easy. To truly take up your cross and follow Jesus will not be easy. It will cost you time. It will cost you finances. It will cost you energy. It will cost you preferences. It will cost you friendships. As you seek to truly proclaim Jesus Christ, there will be people at times that will revile you and oppose you and call you a fool. As you seek to proclaim Jesus Christ and you teach your children where we have children to do the same, there will be times when our children will be mocked for the sake of the gospel. And we will be picking up the pieces with them as parents. And Paul is saying here quite clearly, why would you not expect that? Because mission costs. It's not a walk in the park. It's not a downtown by the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Let's all hold hands and tell people about Jesus and have a laugh for the day and then drink at the opera bar in the afternoon. He's making it very clear. No, this is going to cost you everything. This is so sobering. And as I've gone through this this week, I've been challenged in my own life by a number of things. I've been challenged in my own life for the desire for situational control. And so I want to follow Jesus and I want to risk things for Jesus, but it's my preference when I know the outcome so I know what to risk. You ever experienced that? And so I'm challenged by Paul as he says to them, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I know that's what the Lord's calling me to do, but I don't know what's going to happen. But I do know I'm going to be afflicted and imprisoned. And if I was Paul, I'd be like, God, did you have to tell me that bit? You know, I, I would have rather not gone, gone not knowing. You know, I just want to control. I want to control the outcome. And then I'll risk everything for you, which is actually then no risk at all. That doesn't require faith at all because I know exactly what's going to happen. So let's give it a go. Whereas mission costs. You know, I've also been challenged this week of my desire for comfort. Lord, I want to follow you, but I want to do it comfortably. Lord, I want to risk everything for you, but if there is any way of making it relatively easy for me, I'd really appreciate that. 
because I'm, you know, I'm tired and I'm getting old and I've got stuff on and I've got a social life to try and figure. And... So Lord, I want to follow you and I'm wholeheartedly with you. Oh, but not, not that weekend because we're away, Lord, and there's stuff on that weekend and I need rest that weekend. And... Lord, I want to follow you, but I want it easy. Lord, I want to preach you with the unbelievers that you've brought into my life. I want to proclaim you. But could you make it so that they like me at the end of the day? Because that was really good. And I want to follow Jesus, but I want it to be easy. You know, and I'm pleased that Sunday's come around in part just so I can share the conviction. Um, so that I can share the wealth. And that the Lord can minister to your hearts as well. At least I won't feel alone in being convicted by the scripture. Mission costs. You know, all my historical heroes, Ernest Shackleton is a man I thought on numerous occasions about this week as I was preparing this message. Ernest Shackleton was a 19th century British Antarctic explorer. He wasn't a Christian, but he was a wonderful leader, and that's why I studied him actually at some length some years ago. And one of the most things that he was famous for was leading the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition of 1914. He captained a ship called the Endeavour. And they were off to the Antarctic to research in the Antarctic as to what was taking place there in the world. And what actually happened is he got there with a group of men and they got stuck in pack ice and they were there for 18 months. And he actually had to take a small expedition of about four men, rode 346 miles to Elephant Island so that they could then come back and save the rest of the troops. And he got them all home safely. He's an incredible story and he's an incredible leader. But what's less known about him and what's less known about that story is the way it all began. And the way it all began was this one simple advert that took place in the London Times in 1914. Written by Mr. Shackleton, he said this. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. That was the advert in the London Times. See who comes on board. And his whole point in doing that is, I don't want people to think that this adventure is going to be a walk in the park. I don't want people to think that if they come in my boat, we're just going to, oh, look, let's make snowballs. Let's make snowmen. This will be fun. I don't want anybody singing Frozen in this boat as we leave. You know, (laughs) He is convinced I don't want anybody coming with me that just thinks this is going to be a walk in the park and this is going to be easy. They need to understand if they come with me, it's going to be hazardous, there's going to be low wages, it's going to be very cold, long hours of complete darkness, and I don't even know if we're coming back. You know, that's wise leadership. And I submit to you, Paul, right here, in essence, is doing exactly the same. He's standing with the Ephesian elders representing that church, representing every one of us in the room. Our faces are in the crowd and he's communicating to us, Sovereign Grace, here's something you need to know about following Jesus. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And it will. But when it comes to your mission, you must understand something. Your mission will cost you everything. Mission costs Here's number two. Our mission is totally worth it. This is what he says in verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value 
nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul wants us to know your mission before the Lord is going to be very costly. It's going to cost you a great deal to follow Jesus as you brandish the gospel and take it out. But he also wants you to know your mission is totally worth it. It's worth absolutely everything. It's worthy of the mission. It's worthy of the risk. It is worth it before the Lord to follow him in this way. And it says you examine Paul's letters that you can so readily understand, I think, and see how it is that he comes to that understanding and belief. I mean, there's no need to turn there, but just let me give you three illustrations of Paul's understanding as to why then he can say, but I do not account my life of any value. Lord, I just want to serve you. This is, this is costly, but I just want you to be glorified. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, he gives his testimony. This is what he says to his young boy in the faith. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who do to believe in him for eternal life. Listen, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is staggered by the grace of God. He's staggered that he's a Christian at all. He's aware, I used to be a persecutor. Do you know that? I used to be a blasphemer against the Lord, and yet his is abounding grace. He saved my life. So whatever it costs, to, to the king of glory then, immortal, invisible, would all praise go to him. In Ephesians then, he tells us more about this story of grace, his story of grace, and indeed ours. He says in chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature, this is you, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work in them. Do you feel his heart? Do you feel his passion? Do you feel his amazement that he's even a Christian at all? 
And then in Romans 5, he talks about what God has done for him and indeed us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we are his enemies we are reconciled to him by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. My friends, Paul was amazed by grace, wasn't he? He was totally and utterly taken with the grace of God. He he was aware of, as for me, this is who I was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I wasn't interested in the Lord. In fact, I was actually happy to smile and carry bags while they were stoning Christians because I hated the whole thing. And yet God in his grace came after me and he saved me. He arrested my life and through the death of his son, he made it possible for me to be forgiven of my sin and reconciled to him and redeemed. Heaven is actually my home and I've been adopted by him. This is scandalous grace. Paul is amazed by grace and here is the point of that that I want you to understand. It was that amazement that provided Paul with the perspective of his cost. You see, were Paul's costs real? Yes. They were very real. They were totally real. He was crying with the Ephesian elders. He's aware that, look, I'm nervous about what lay ahead. It's going to be afflictions. It's going to be imprisonments. But guys, I've got to go. He's aware all of his life what it is to be shipwrecked and stoned and whipped and beaten for the faith. He's aware that this cost is very real, but when the rubber hits the road, his exclamation is still this. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. This is what I want to do. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the glory of the gospel of grace. Paul is so taken with God so taken with his amazing grace that for him to carry a cost in light of all that Jesus had done for him was totally worth it. See, if he was here and we were saying to Paul, you know, Paul, why are you still doing this? Because this sounds really hard. Why are you so committed to mission when it's costing you everything? Why are you still going when, you've, when you're going to be afflicted and imprisoned? Paul, you're telling us that you won't see, see your face again. Maybe if you stayed here, we could just have a gospel ministry here instead. Why are you going? And his premise is simple. Because Jesus Christ has saved me. Because Jesus Christ died in my place. and I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but... Jesus Christ gave up his life for me. He tied in my place. And then in his abounding grace, he's now called me to do some work for him. He's, he's playing a part in my life. And he's calling me to do good works for him that he set apart in scandalous grace before I was even born. And I love him. And he's called me to this. So I've got to go. 
And I don't do it begrudgingly. It's going to cost me. But look at what it cost him. I've got to go. In a part of the call of God on my life, as your pastor, is to protect you. In verses 28 through verses 31, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders very clearly in their capacity as elders. Elder and pastor and overseer, they're all interchangeable words in the New Testament. Listen to what he says, because this is how God addresses me. As your pastor, verse 28, he instructs me, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And a part of the call of God on my life is to protect this local church, to protect us from within, where false truths and false teachers raise up from within, and to protect us from without, when wolves seek to come in and tear us apart and cause us disunity and so forth. And I take that really seriously. And I take it really seriously because the book of Hebrews tells me that one day I will stand before the Lord and give an account of how I went in that. You know, I can struggle with the fear of man, but I struggle with the fear of God far more. I'm called to do this. I'm called by God to protect us as a local church. And I am fearlessly protective of you. When I talk to other pastors about you, I'm often not talking us up as a local church, but I am indeed talking you up. Because I love you. And I love being with you. I love the people that you are and your passion for the Lord and your love for the gospel and proclaiming it and allowing it to be applied in your lives. And I'm passionately committed to this word so that by God's grace, through this word, we may be protected as a local church from heresy, from error, from going off the path. It's my job to, by the grace of God, keep us on the path. And yet I will not and I must not ever protect you from the cost of mission. I must never do that. Why? Because it's part of the call of God on your life. Paul himself spent three chapters talking to the Ephesians about amazing grace, what God had done for them. And then at the right of the start of chapter 4, I urge you then, brothers... Live according to the calling that you've received. What he's basically saying is live for him. Let it all be him. Will it cost you sovereign grace? Yes, it will. There will be times, as with Melody, when I won't be sleeping at night because I'll be praying for you. Because you're just, Lord, Lord, step in. Lord, do something. There will be times when I will look you in your eyes when you're describing to me a situation that you are walking through as you seek to advance the gospel forward and it's a painful one. But I must not and will not ever call you to stop taking the cost for Jesus Christ because we're called to do it. We're called to risk everything as we seek to follow him. Will it cost us? Yes, it will, but it is worth it. And it is worth it because Jesus Christ has called your name. In his abounding grace, he's called your name forth. 
And his son died in your place. And he has now, in his amazing grace, put a grace on your life and called you to good works, whereby you're meant to serve him with all your heart. Will it cost you? Yes, it will. Will it be worth it? Yes, it will. Because you will get to stand and walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And more than that, one day, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 tells us that one day all these things will be brought before the Lord. Everything will come to light. Now, too many Christians think, oh, that is going to be a horrendous moment. I don't want it all to come to light. Read the rest of the verse. It says that all these things will come to light and each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. My friends, for those times when we've blown it in our lives, that will be burnt up through the blood of Jesus Christ and be removed. But you will stand before the Lord on that last day, not to receive his punishment, but to receive his commendation. And if you listen up carefully on that day, somewhere at the back of the crowd will be the distinct sound of an English voice going, yes! It is worthy of risking all for Jesus Christ. It is worthy to count the cost and pursue him mission will cost us everything. But as like Paul says, mission is totally worth it. And then one more thing in closing. But three, our mission is fueled by dependence. See, there is no doubt that Paul's mission is fueled by dependence, isn't it? Paul is totally and utterly dependent upon God. He's been called by God. He's aware he's been called by God to go and proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But he's also aware that he needs to be empowered by God for the mission. It isn't just been that God's called him and then he's like, okay, got to go, let's go do it. He's saying, you're calling me? Then I'm hitting my knees and I'm crying out to you for grace. I'm going to go forward on my knees because I need you. I need to be dependent upon you. Lord, help me. Give me boldness and courage where I lack it. The Apostle Paul is totally and utterly dependent upon God and he is totally fueled by the gospel. Something that he so often calls in his letters the word of his grace. He's fueled by God and dependent upon God and fueled by the gospel. These two things are the things that drive him forward. And that's why in verse 32, as Paul continues his goods by speech to the Ephesian elders, representing the church, representing us, These words, as we embrace our mission, should not surprise us. Listen to what he says, verse 32. And now then, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. My friends, for us now, standing on Paul's shoulders, I want to commend you as well. I want to commend you first and foremost in the midst of our mission to God. Because he is the one that will give us grace. You know, we don't need necessarily loads of counseling and loads of training. The the Lord has already given us the gospel. We just need him. We need his strengthening. We need his courage. We need his Holy Spirit to give us boldness to go. We need, by his abounding grace, to walk closely with the great I am, the one who is all-knowing and all-seeing and all-powerful. The one who says, I'm calling you to go and make disciples of all nations. And then right at the end of the verse, and lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. What he's basically saying is, I am the great I am. This is what I want you to do for me. And I'm coming with you. 
We need him, don't we? So I want to commend you then. I want to entrust and appoint you, first of all, to God. That's how Paul was able to do what he was able to do. He was a man that walked in the Spirit. He was a man that walked dependent upon grace. He was a man that walked with the Lord, that rose early and cried out to the Lord for grace because he was aware, outside of you helping me, I will never finish the day. Sovereign Grace, I commend you then, first of all, to God, and I also commend you to the word of his grace. That's what Paul's saying. You know, guys, mission's going to cost you. It's totally worth it. And so I commend you to the Lord and to the word of his grace, the gospel. My friends, I also commend you then to God and to the word of his grace. The word of his grace simply is there, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. The gospel is that which we brandish, that if we take out and we pursue in the name of Jesus Christ, it has a power within it, a dynamite of the gospel, that can in a moment break into people's lives. And when God wants to do that, the gospel is unstoppable. We see it all the way through the book, and if that doesn't inspire faith, I'm not sure what ever will. Because it's all here. It's illustrated time and time and time again of God sovereignly breaking into people's lives through the gospel. But that's not all that Paul wants you to notice. What does he say? He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. My friends, I commend you to the word of grace, not only because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I commend you to the gospel because it is able to build you up. If you are like me, there will be times in your life when you are struggling to be motivated to tell people about Jesus. When you get distracted, when the world's despairs come upon you, or the world's sparkles start to attract you. But then you come back to the gospel and you realize who I was before the Lord and all he's done for me and all he's called me to. And there is a spirit in my heart that burns again and I want to go. The gospel motivates us. It is able to build us up. And the gospel also guards us, doesn't it? I think evangelism so often is something that people don't like hearing about because immediately they hear the word evangelism, the E word, they feel condemnation. My friends, you need to understand, however good or bad at evangelism you are, Jesus Christ in God sings over you with thanksgiving. He loves you to absolute bits because your evangelism isn't adding to the work of his salvation. He loves you with a passion because of what Jesus Christ did in your place. You are saved by grace and grace alone, not saved by grace plus evangelism and then he might like you. You're saved by grace and grace alone. And when we're preaching the gospel with people, when it goes well, that's great. When it goes badly, well, never mind. Jesus Christ still says, I love you though. Go again. Let's try again. But this isn't the basis of your salvation. I'm the basis of your salvation. It's through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone that we stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. My friends, we must then, even in the midst of our evangelism, we must ensure that the gospel is central, not only because it has the power of God to salvation, but also because it builds us up. It guards us from legalism. It guards us from condemnation. And it motivates us as we realize, that's why I want to do this. 
Look at all he's done for me. That's why I want to do it. Compelled by his love. You know, last words in the midst of painful goodbyes are always chosen carefully, aren't they? You would never quickly just utter words if you knew I'm never going to see these people again. And that's exactly what is happening here in these words. And that is exactly what these words before us, I think, are so important. Because these are the carefully chosen words of a painful goodbye. And my friends, I want to encourage you then. This isn't just for the Ephesian elders. This isn't just for the Ephesian church. This is God speaking to us. This is Paul saying goodbye to us as well. So you can care for us. And I want to encourage you then. Mission costs. May we never take that for granted. May we never start to think that, oh, I just thought it would be easy. Really? Where do you get that from in the Bible? Mission is hard. Mission is difficult. Mission costs us things. But mission, our mission, is totally worth it. In light of all he's done, in light of all that he is doing, in light of all that he will do when you stand before him on that day and receive your commendation, let it all be about Jesus. Let it all our lives be about the gospel going forward. And we're only going to do it if our mission is fueled by dependence. So let's be dependent upon him. And let us stand around the gospel and with the gospel of Jesus Christ then build us up. Let's pray. Lord, as we said at the start, I do thank you for your word. And although this goodbye is indeed painful, Lord, as you read it, you can't help but feel as if you're there. And that's because in so many ways, we were there. Lord, thank you for addressing us. Lord, you not only call us to mission, but then you communicate to us about what that means and you care for us in the midst of that. And Lord, would we be sobered by these words today? But would we also be equipped by these words today? Equipped to go. Equipped to do that which we're called to by your abounding grace. Equipped to move forward. And Lord, as we move forward, would we move forward dependent upon you? Lord, we want to be like you. Lord, our lives have been dramatically saved by your glorious gospel of grace. And so would we give our lives to proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? Equipped by your word, would we go in the name of Jesus?